tonight we're talking marriage in our DMs, Dating in Marriage series. And uh, I've been married for seven years. My wife is the girl who was right here, Tyler. Yeah, she's great. She's the, she's the talented one in the family, in case you haven't figured that out yet. Um, but Tyler was uh, a music person in college, a uh, music degree. She was in some groups, and, and she got to do some cool traveling, got to go to Europe, got to do some cool things. Really, before we got married, when we got married, um, guys, you know one of the cool things about marriage is that, like, you get to learn and do new things. Like, you get, there's new habits, there's new things. And, like, one of the places that I just never went to eat as a habit, it was just never across the radar, was sushi. Any sushi people out there? People love sushi. Anybody hate sushi? A handful? Okay, I, I see that. Okay, so when we got married, Tyler would be like, oh, man, I, I feel like go, going to get some sushi. And I was always like, man, sushi's just not my thing. Like, even the word just kind of sounds gross. It doesn't sound like sushi. It just sounds gross. Um, and, but she would always be like, let's go get some sushi. And I'm always like, I just, I don't, I don't think I want to. Like, this doesn't sound good to me. And she kind of had to kind of parse out, like, why, why don't you like sushi? Like, what is it about? And I was like, well, I've had sushi, and I don't like it. And she's like, well, well where did you go? And I was like, well, I'm trying to think. It was in uh, Manhattan, Kansas, which I don't think is the sushi capital in the Midwest. Uh, it was in Man- Manhattan, Kansas, K-State, home of K-State. Uh, and uh, it was at a Chinese buffet uh, that, if I remember right, cost $7.99 and was connected to a gas station. Okay, so I was at this Chinese buffet with some guys. We were, we were trying some things out, and it was like, oh, there's sushi over there. I was like, I'd never had sushi before. So went over, grabbed some sushi, and it didn't taste good. I'll, I'm just to be honest, it was bad sushi. So I, I told Tyler that, and she was like, okay, here's the thing. That's not going to be good sushi. And I was like, well, why not? And she was like, well, that sushi... They're putting it out at, an, at a buffet. This was not like I ordered sushi at a buffet. This was like, this was out at the buffet. People were breathing on it. Sneeze guards weren't in full effect. Like, this was not good sushi. It was just out there for anybody to snag. No idea what it was, no idea what I had, but it wasn't good. And Tyler had to rein me in and be like, okay, you need to, we need to go somewhere good and get some decent sushi. So she took me to a place, and I don't remember the first time, but she took me to a place in Springfield, She told me what to order. She said, this is what's in it. They make it fresh. These guys right here are going to make it. They're going to bring it to our table, and it's made fresh, and it changed my life. Like, I love sushi now. Sushi's a great thing. I love getting sushi. Um, But the difference was is that I had in my mind a perception, an idea of what sushi was, but it was the gas station buffet $7.99 version of sushi and not the good real version of sushi. Um, And that's just one of the things that marriage will bring you as a good thing. But I think as we talk about marriage, the reality is is that we all have some kind of perception, some kind of idea of what marriage is. And if we're honest, whether you have parents that are together, separated, never were together, divorced, whatever your situation is with your parents, you have a perception of what marriage is. And chances are your parents had some things that they messed up in, things that they weren't perfect in. Even in a great marriage, there are things that you look at as a child in it and you go, okay, I don't ever want to do it that way, so I'm going to shape my relationships and my marriage this way. And then you add in on top of that TV, you add in movies, you add in what it looks like. And if I'm honest, most TV, most movies, the picture of marriage is, and they rode off into the sunset after something happened, and we don't get to see what daily marriages look like. We just don't. And if we're honest, we get the buffet, $7.99, Manhattan, Kansas, connected to a gas station version of marriage, where it's not what God intended, 
It's not what God wanted, but that's our view of it. And what I want you to know tonight, if I were to, to kind of title my message, it would be why you can have a good marriage. Why you can have a good marriage. Because I really think that God, if you have the desire to be married, that's a good thing. Now, that desire should not be an idol, but that should be, if you've got it, that's fine. That's a great thing to have. But it shouldn't supplant God's uh, you know, purpose in, in being a, a big thing in your life. That shouldn't supplant him. But that desire is not a bad thing. But I think we have to check our intentions. We have to check our motivations. We have to check what we think and know about marriage as we step into it. So tonight, we're going to get started, and we're going to be in Ephesians 5. It's kind of the the playbook for marriage, of what marriage should be. And and it's Paul writing to this church in Ephesus about what marriage should be. And man, I I just love the book of Ephesians. It's so clear, and it's so practical, and you have such good pictures of what the gospel is. And when Paul starts writing here, he starts writing, and the, the heading for me in Ephesians 5, in the second part, it gets to wives and husbands. Now, there are things in here, if you're like, okay, I'm married, um, I've already got this figured out, there's things that are going to be applied to you. If you're dating, there's going to be things that, are, that you can apply, things that you can understand. If you're engaged, there are things more than anyone in the room that you can start to apply. And even if you're single, you can know this is what marriage can look like. And this is what not just any marriage can look like, but this is what a good marriage can look like. So we're in Ephesians 5, and this is where he starts. Ephesians 5, 22 through 24. This is, and he starts with the wives, and he says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And this is the one, like, the rest of this is going to sound great, and we're going to enjoy it. And once we get past these couple of verses, most people are going to be like, I'm on with this. But this is the one, and it starts with it, so it's tough. But it starts with the female first, and this is what it says. It says to submit to your husbands as the church does to Christ. And what's tough about this is the word submit is not a word that we enjoy. It's not a word that someone might listen to and say, that's something I want to do. And honestly, the, the, the idea that, I, that comes into my head is like a UFC fighter that like is, is going to wrap somebody up, put them in a hold, cut off their breathing, break an arm, put them in an arm bar, rear naked choke hold, and choke them out. And what do you do? You, you tap out. You submit. That's what it's called. There's submission. TKO by submission, right? You all know what that is, right? But you submit, you, you tap out, you say, okay, I, your power is stronger than mine, so I'm going to say I'm done. And that's the vision, that's the purpose that we see in the word submit. And, and I want to propose tonight that that idea is the, the 799 gas station, Manhattan, Kansas, buffet version of marriage that we see. Because that word taken in that context Most people in this room are going to go, that's not for me. That's not what I want. I don't want to submit to anyone. I don't want to submit. But when we look at the context of what he says, what we're supposed to do, it's not a version where you are pushed down, but it's a version where you are pulled up. It's not a version where you are relegated to smaller tasks. It's not a version where you are called to just be quiet, sit in the back, do your job until someone calls on you. You don't get to have a voice, you don't get to have opinion, you don't get to make decisions, that's not the case. You can't read through the Bible and read that God affirms women, God brings them up to the the same level as men and says you have value, you have intrinsic value, and it's not less than. But this is the role that he chooses for us. 
And I wish I could tell you exactly why, but this is the analogy that he brings to us. He says, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And and what this section goes on and tells us is that you submitting to your husband, as you do this, even if you don't like the idea of it, this is a way that you do it not to your husband, but to God. And I'm so thankful as a person that's married as a husband that my wife submits and is kind and good and follows my lead, not because I'm such a great leader or I'm such a great husband, but she does it because it's a way of worship for her as unto the Lord. So what does this word mean? It's not an admission of being inferior. It's not a submission, a tap out, you're bigger and stronger than me, you're more powerful than me. This is someone is using their power, someone is using their ability, someone is using their God-given position to raise me up. And I'm gonna admit that that is what your goal is and I'm going to follow along in that. It's a posture, it's, it's a readiness to honor. It's a readiness to acknowledge the position that God has placed us in, in marriage. That when he shows this, this is not just what God decided. This is, there is submission all across the Bible. When you read about Jesus, he submitted to the will of the Father. This is not something that is less than. This is the plan of God acted out in Jesus. We get to act out within marriage. So what do we submit to? Um, I think this idea is best understood when you think about submitting, you, the word that comes along with it a lot of times is submitting to authority, right? Like if you had a principal, if you had a professor, if you had a, a, a you know, set of parents, if you had um, a boss, you submit to authority. And when I think about submitting to authority, I think about like where my kids are or like they need to submit to my authority, not because God just put me there so I can be strong and powerful for them, but, but so I can help raise them up into the people that God has created them to be and that they can glorify God to the best of their abilities. When you think about it in this context of I love you, I want the best for you, I don't want you to be squashed down and be diminished and smaller than, I want you to flourish, I want you to grow, I want you to be at your best So submit, and that's so counterintuitive to what we know, but when we see it under the context of what he shows as Christ in the church, Christ does not push down his church. The the church being not this building, not the brick and mortar 900 Northeast Gate, the, the church being his people, the people that he died for, the people that he loves, the people that he wants to sanctify and make more like him, the people that he, he entrusted to carry his good news of the gospel to everyone around. This is not God saying it's less than. This is God saying, I want you to go. I want this to be the best possible situation. I want the best for you. I have more planned for you. I want, don't want death. I want life more abundantly. This is God saying that this is not the answer of submission, pushing down. It's a lifting up. And I think we have to change our mindset because no one wants to submit to someone who's pushing you down. But the God who comes to your rescue, not just once, but every day, every moment, and is willing to forgive, make new, renew your mind, give you purpose in life, that's the type of submission that we need. When I think about 
What do we submit? It's not inferior, it's not secondary, it's not meant to wait and be silent. You can't read other parts of the Bible and read even what Paul wrote in some of the churches that he wrote letters to and some of these women were leading the charge of the church. And they weren't sitting in the back with their hands folded waiting for someone to call on them. Submit. It's not what they were doing. It's not it. So what is it? It's not following someone blindly. Once you're in a marriage, it's not just, okay, you just have to do whatever they say. If there's something immoral, if there's something, you are called to still be a member and a part and a pusher and a driver in your family and in your relationship as you submit. So what is it? I want to read John 3.16 so we understand what it is that Christ has done for the church. And if you know this verse, you might be a little blind or a little numb to the, to the words in this, but I want you to read it like it's been the first time. For God so loved the world that he gave, released, gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And I'm gonna read the next verse. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, push it down, but in order that the world might be saved through him. What are some things that we see in there? I'm gonna say there's, there's three eights. There's three eights. He initiated. God saw us in our trouble, and he didn't stand there and go, ah, I hope they figure it out. So what do we submit to? We submit to God initiating. When we think about a husband in marriage, he should be an initiator. What do you submit to? You submit to him initiating. I'm gonna be honest, that's one of the, the, the toughest things that I think men do right now, because they see women that are strong, they see women that are leading in the church, they see women that are active and maybe a stronger believer than they are, and they go, okay, I don't think I can lead, I don't think I can initiate. Hey, initiate. Take the first step. What did Jesus do? He loved, so he gave. Initiate. Second thing is communicate. Jesus did not come and save us and then hide the plan. He didn't come and save us and then say, I hope somebody figures it out. He communicated. He brought his church and communicated. Paul went all over the place so people would know. Guys, we have to learn to communicate. We can't expect people to submit in marriage if we can't communicate. Talk, bring things up in initiating ways. To not just hope that everything boils over and, and gets a little bit better, but to communicate. And lastly, to elevate. When you read the rest of it, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's what we were destined for, but we were brought out of that. If anyone were to call in the name of the Lord, they're not condemned, but to be brought back to life. Man, in your relationships, and here's what I have to say about this. You are not called to submit to people that are not your husband. So if there's someone that you're dating, not your husband. There's no submission there. The, the things that we're talking about in marriage should be things that you work to achieve to, things that you work towards. This is not something that as you're dating, you have to figure out. Should there be some signposts towards it? Yes, absolutely. But that's not what we're called to. Dating is this in-between of singleness and marriage that we try to conflate the two, but the reality is that it's not there. So what do you submit to? These three things. But what you should see in dating is an elevation of that person. Do they make you better? Do they use words that encourage or tear down? Do they elevate you to be a better person? 
Do they elevate you to follow Christ better? Do they elevate your commitments? This is the, not the pushing down, but the bringing up. This is what Christ did for the church. This is what husbands should do for the wife. This is a two-player game. This is not husbands are looking for someone and they get to walk whatever direction they want with no thought of the person that's coming along next to them and say, hey, as I go wherever I want and do whatever I want and be as selfish as I want, you submit to me, not the game. That's not what God designed in marriage. God did not say, hey, once you come find me and what I'm doing, then you come and submit to me. He said, I came and found you. And that's what we submit to. That's what following Jesus looks like. When we think about what it looks like to follow Jesus, it's submitting, right? When you submit, there is a a piece of it to say that you are the answer God and I'm not. And what I wanna tell you tonight as we keep moving is that if we don't have that figured out, a good marriage is just something on the horizon that maybe we'll have one day, maybe we think about, maybe we can read enough books, maybe we can do the right thing, but if we don't know Jesus and if we haven't personally submitted our lives to him, I don't think a good marriage is in the books for us. So the second thing, and this is what interplays, submission, and the next thing is sacrifice. We see it in Ephesians 5, 25. He, he gives a short section to the women and then the next big section is for the men, if that tells you anything. But he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The picture here is a sacrifice, a giving themselves up. This is Jesus seeing us in our difficulty, seeing us in our our path towards hell because of the sin that we brought in. To think about what Paul wrote about in Ephesians 2, just a page over, when he said you were dead in your trespasses, in which you once walked, following every which way the, the world runs. You were carrying out the desires of your body, of your mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I mean, it's just an ugly picture of humanity. But then he says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he's loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace you've been saved, not of yourselves, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. For by grace you've been saved through faith, not of your own doing, it's a gift of God. This is the story of God's sacrifice for us. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only son, he bridged the gap. There was a gap where we were on one side with our sin There was God, and he said, you can't figure it out. You're dead. Dead things don't move towards living things. But God made a way. And he sacrificed his own son. And this is what he's saying here. Husbands, love your wives. How I've loved the church. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is an idea of like self-sacrifice, of giving yourself up laying down your life, laying down your preference. And this is the interplay between the first point and the second point. Sacrifice has to be met with submission. Submission has to be met with sacrifice. 
that we as husbands should be willing to both die, which I think is kind of the Hollywood Disney picture. Um, One of my favorite movies is Inside Out. It's just hilarious, and it's like a good picture of what happens in somebody's head. And um, one of my favorite things, there's like a moment where like the the girl has like a a thing that that creates her her perfect guy in her head. Does anybody remember that? And at one point, it just keeps popping out the same guy over and over. And, And this guy pops out, and what he's saying over and over, and he like pops out, and he goes, I would die for you. And it's like, we think that's funny, because the girl, I think, is like 12, and you know that no 12-year-old knows what it looks like to die for another person. And I think that's the mentality that we can have as guys of like, oh, I'll, I would die, I would do anything for you. But for me personally, what that looks like sometimes is like, would I get off the couch for you? And like, I, I talked about this last time we talked about marriage, but my wife has such a gift. She's such a gifted person that we talked about. But what her greatest gift might be is waiting until I get right out of earshot and saying, hey, Jared, real quietly. And it's like, guys, it's self-sacrifice for me to just go, I'll walk over and figure out what she wants because she thinks I'm right next to her, and I'm not. Her other gifting is as soon as I sit down on the couch, as soon as I sit down on the couch, Hey, while you're up, oh, I didn't see you sit down. I'm so sorry. No, I'll be up. It's cool. And I know that those seem like silly things, but I think that we have this skewed picture of what sacrifice is where it's this big, bold thing, and it's the the, the end of the movie where the girl gets in trouble and the guy has to show up and save the day, but we don't show them emptying out a dishwasher. And, And I think that we have to know that our goal has to be dying for our spouses every day. Now, I would do the big thing, but I will also do the small thing because I want to show you in everyday life that I will pour myself out for you. To see how, to see what we talked about first, to see the things that I want to push my wife up in and help her in and see the things that pull her down and say, okay, I can help with one of those. I might not be talented at doing laundry, but I'll try. I'll try my best. And sometimes I don't, and I need to repent of that. But we'll try. We'll be self-sacrificing. And I think we, I want to reframe even when he says, love your wives, because I think we have such a skewed view of what love is, and we think that it's just, if I find the right person, it'll just feel right. It'll feel like a lock and a key, and it'll just be right, right? Like, everything will just kind of click, and every, it, it won't be difficult, and it won't be hard. When you read through, Logan and I have been talking through, like, 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about love in 1 Corinthians, and this is what he says in 1 Corinthians 4 through 6. He says, love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy or boast, love is not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful, ouch to me. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Is this the way that your love Looks, could you replace the word love with your name and have it still be true? But look at the next sentence. Look at what it says next. It says, love bears all things and believes all things and hopes all things and endures all things. What this is not saying is just some some mystical words of like, it's how does love bear all things? Like MSU, bear up, like I don't understand it. When it says love bears all things, the, the, the word picture there is a roof. 
A, a roof bears things. Right now it's bearing, the roof of this building is bearing some rain. In the next couple of days, it's gonna bear some wintry mix that we're hearing about that we might not get, but SPS already closed down. Do I hear an amen from any teachers? One in the back, there we go, Mary Hampton. But a, but a roof bears things. It protects from elements. Can I tell you what it's like to have a spouse that's a roof for you? That when someone comes in and says, man, Jerry doesn't do a whole lot at home, I'm protected. Not in a way that's blind to my, 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 my shortcomings, but a way that says, I'm gonna be a protector for him. To say, I know that there are things that we need to work on, but I wanna protect you. I wanna be there for you. I wanna deflect some of that weather that's coming your way, because some of it's not correct. Some of it's just your opinion. Love bears all things. The next part, he says, believes all things. Is this just an idea that like, love just is this kind of dumb thing that like whatever it's told, it's gonna believe? When it says it believes all things, it's saying, I'm gonna believe the best about you. I'm gonna maintain a good opinion. I'm gonna hope the best for you. I'm gonna believe that even when all the signs point to bad, I'm gonna believe the best about you in the same way that Christ would believe the best about you because you are not finished yet. It believes the best. Then it says it, it hopes all things. It sees the potential. It knows that you are a work in progress and gives you grace, gives you forgiveness. It doesn't say, hey, I, I, I'm not gonna attend to the bad things. It says, hey, we're gonna work on the bad things because I believe the best about you. And lastly, it says it's enduring. It endures all things. And that one I think is the most self-evident. It's not a love that is just there one day and gone the next. Sometimes it's easy to be a covering for somebody one time. Sometimes it's easy to maintain a good opinion about somebody one time. Sometimes it's easy to believe the best about someone one time. But what endures all things means is that it's gonna keep doing it over and over and over, and it's gonna help. It's gonna believe the best, all those things. And it flows into the next point that Paul makes in Ephesians, in Ephesians 26 and 27. He says, he gave himself up for her at the end of 25, and he says that he might sanctify her. That's the third thing we see, submission, sacrifice, and sanctification, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Can I tell you that marriage is sanctifying in and of itself? Like, you think that, okay, we're dating, we got engaged, everything's going well, but then you end up living with someone and those things that like, you kiss them goodnight, text them goodnight, and then you got to go live however you wanted at home with your roommates or at home with your parents, like that doesn't exist anymore. And do you know that people are just annoying? Like I don't know if that's news to you, but like people are annoying. Like if you came to my house and had to, had to stay in our guest bedroom for a night, you'd be like, man, Jared and Tyler do some things that are really annoying. And did you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna help you. Did you know you're a little annoying? And when you are in marriage with someone, those annoying things 
aren't hidden anymore. And it's both a very difficult thing, but also a very good thing. Because one of the goals of marriage that Paul states here is that you would become more like Christ and not just this little picture of like, oh, you know, they're, they're working on it. I mean, that's a piece of it. But the, the picture that he paints here is the washing of the water of the word that you're pouring over God's word together, that you, you're saying, hey, this doesn't make sense to me. Can you help? Hey, I, I'm reading this and I don't see how we do this. Can we, can we start to give? Can we start to serve? Can we start to make our marriage look like this and make our family look like this? Because my parents didn't do this, but I read it here. I see it in community. Do you think we can start to kind of shape these things? And that sandpaper starts to get a little smoother because you're making each other more like Christ. But the picture, he says, this is what we have to keep in mind. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. Because the reality is, is that at some point, I'm gonna stand before God and I'm gonna have to give an account, not just for myself, but for my family, for my wife that I've led, for my kids, for my reaction, for all the things that I've done, and I'm gonna have to give an account of how I've led her. And I don't wanna stand before God and say, "Um, I just tried to make my marriage about what I could get out of it. My wife was really good at serving me, so I took advantage of that, and I was pretty lazy with us. I want to stand before God and say, God, I I tried my best to make my wife spotless, without blemish, holy, so that you could do a great work in her. Marriage is sanctifying. We're constantly confronted in marriage with selfishness and obedience. Will you be selfish? Will you be obedient? And to the single people in here, I'm going to say work these things out now. Work them out with your parents. Work them out in community. Work them out with roommates. Because what you are in singleness, you will be made more of in marriage. If you're selfish now, you're going to be even more selfish in marriage. It's going to come to light. If you're greedy now, it's going to come. If you're prideful, it's going to become more. If you want things and material, it's going to become more. It's a multiplier. But if your life looks like you are running towards Christ with everything that you have, man, it'll glorify God. It'll be a good thing. Fourth thing, Ephesians 28 and 30. It says, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who is... Who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. What what happens in marriage is that you have to start taking on not just the needs of your spouse, but the wants, the desires, the, the things that, listen guys, there's a whole list of things that I would have never considered a need until we were married. Like the price of haircut budget in my budget was different. I won't tell you which way it went, but it was different. And I was like, listen, you can go get a haircut for like 12 bucks. I know some places. But it wasn't, it wasn't the same. And I'm not saying that to make light of something, but to say that there are things that it's easy to see how like, listen, the need for me might be a new PlayStation, but a need for you might be to look beautiful. And in reality, one of those is a need and one of those is a want. 
And I had to check myself for saying I want a lot of things and it's easy for me to manipulate a budget for me to change things to make it look like that's a need and and diminish what Tyler wanted and needed. But what it comes down to is our, our fourth word and that's serve. We have to serve each other in marriage. When he talks about how it's as your own body, he talks about it earlier in verse 23 where he says the husband is the head of the wife, even as the Christ is, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Like, my, my, my head doesn't often do a disservice to the rest of my body. Normally, um, if my body is hurting in some way, my head will make the other things happen to make my body serve itself to heal. Um, a couple years ago, I hurt my back. Like, you guys know I'm kind of old. So I, I hurt my back. And um, I had to end up going to, like, get an x-ray and get some, go to the chiropractor and do all this stuff. Um, but what happened is, like, I, I had to think through with my head, how am I going to serve the rest of my body? I'm going to get a heat pack. I'm going to stretch. I'm going to go to the chiropractor. I'm going to do all the things that are going to help me. I'm going to take medicine when it's appropriate. I'm going to do all the things that are appropriate to help my body as my head is thinking about it, not just when the pain is so bad that I can't move. That we get to serve in this way, and it's completely different. It changes everything. So, so we have kind of these, these four posts that hold up what we talk about love. And when we talk about love, we have to take our 1 Corinthians 13 definition of a roof, a covering, believing the best, hoping for the future, enduring. And the roof is held up by these four posts of submission and sacrifice and sanctification and service. And he finishes his talk on marriage by saying, therefore, in verse 31. He says, therefore, and when you read the word therefore, you go back and look at what it's there for. He's just painted the picture. He's just said, this is what marriage should look like. Husband and wife, they mirror the Christ in this. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And I don't think I asked, I did ask to put this on the screen. I didn't put it in my notes. But the verse after that says the mystery is profound. And when it says the mystery is profound, it's not saying like, man, that's a really hard puzzle. We can't figure it out. It's saying what was once a mystery has now been uncovered. Why would a good marriage last? Why is something that's built on the solid rock of God last? He says, I'm saying that marriage, saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And then he says, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. So what he's saying there is that in marriage, we have an opportunity Not to just have a good marriage. That's what we talked about at the front. Not to just have a marriage that's fun where we like each other into our 60s and 70s and 80s and we, we hold hands as old people, as great grandparents. I mean, I hope that's it for all of you. But more than that, I hope that your marriage is so shaped by the mystery of God in your life that he has so shaped you and he has shaped you to say I know you're broken but I know it's only me that can help you so I'm going to send Jesus to radically change your life and die and take the punishment that you deserve on the cross take all of it for himself and then say now you can walk in life because he 
didn't just die there. He walked out of the grave so that we could have hope, not just that one time, but every time. And if two people have their lives changed by this forever, he said, the mystery is profound. That people will look at you and say, this doesn't make any sense. Why is it? I know them. I know Jared. He's not perfect. I know Jared. He's annoying. I know Jared. He's got his issues. But why is it that marriage can work? It's because Christ loved the church. And he gave himself up for it. And what we have in marriage is an opportunity. We can frame that love to the rest of the world. And what happens with an opportunity is that opportunities can be lost and opportunities can be messed up. You have probably seen how opportunity of marriage has been messed up in your life somewhere. You've seen how two people entered into marriage excited. Being at a wedding is one of the most exciting things. But over time, they go, ah, did you, maybe they're not the same. Maybe they messed up. Listen, people are going to mess up. But what we have the opportunity to do is say, I have been so changed by God. Listen, I was dead in my trespasses. I was so sinful. I was so messed up. I still am. But God, who loves me, made me alive together with him. And if you go on to read, he, he created good things for us to do before we could ever dream of it. And that's why you can have a good marriage. That's why you can have a marriage that goes beyond good to a marriage that glorifies God. That's why you can have a marriage that projects God's goodness out into the world. Because everybody knows that nobody's perfect. And you get to love, you get to forgive, you get to submit, you get to sanctify, you get to serve, you get to sacrifice. And that whole time, we only get to do that because we are fed from a well of Jesus. Doing that in your life, doing that in your spouse's life. And it changes the way that people view relationships, but ultimately it changes the way that people view God. And that's why you can have a good marriage. Will you bow your heads?